This is CNN. Radio. On June 17, 1967, Clive Davis, a lawyer by training with no background in music, found himself at the Monterey Pop Festival in California. I found myself there serendipitously, and there was Janis Joplin in a group, unheralded. No one had ever heard of her or Big Brother and the holding company. And I took advantage of that, never thinking I'd sign an artist, certainly that weekend, maybe never, and committed myself to sign her. After a year of pursuing her and her band and politely declining her request to seal the deal by having sex, Clive Davis signed Janis Joplin. I've got a hold on me, baby And it feels like a balling And so the boy who lost both his parents when he was a teenager worked his way through Harvard Law School on a full scholarship and dreamed of someday making $25,000 a year was on his way up. This is CNN Profiles. I'm your host, Michael Shoulder. Clive, thank you for joining us on CNN Profiles. It's my pleasure to be here today. And uh, you have just written the soundtrack of my life, and you've gone on a number of shows to talk about this. You've agreed to do a half hour with us, and I'll tell you, I promise I will not keep you for more than 40 minutes because an hour is what you deserve. <laughs> I walked into our sound booth today and serendipitously was the living section of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And the headline was Alicia Keys, Emmylou Harris, Barry Manilow. Oh, my. It's an eclectic melange of concerts set for Atlanta this spring. And it's like, wait a second, Alicia Keys, Barry Manilow. Were you also involved with Emmylou Harris or just Keys and Manilow? No, no, just Alicia and Barry of those three. So two out of three. That ain't bad. Two out of three ain't bad, someone said. Yeah. That's right. So, and, and when I hear you talk and when I look at this book, I guess the key, the key words I keep on hearing is, I signed. Tell me who you have signed in your music career as a music executive. Well, it begins with the first artist, and that was Janis Joplin and Big Brother and the Holding Company, and that ushered in a whole new life, a gift I never knew I had, and and involved music, which became the passion of my life. So my signings when I became head of Columbia Records were really all rock artists. Those are the artists that have um, gotten me into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So they included uh, Aerosmith and Blood, Sweat, and Tears and Chicago, Santana, Bruce Springsteen, Billy Joel, Earth, Wind, and Fire, until I founded Arista in 19, the latter part of 1974. And our first hit was with Barry Manilow. I didn't discover him at the outset. He had one album out. But I did agree to have him on the brand new Arista roster. And together, 
with his material and with songs like Mandy, and ultimately I write the songs and Weekend in New England looks like we made it, we became a great team, and Barry really paved the way, uh, honing, from my point of view, a new talent, and that was finding hit songs for artists that entertain. But after Barry, it encouraged me to sign artists like Dion Warwick and uh, Aretha Franklin. And of course, that led me to Whitney Houston and our, you know, incredible years together cut tragically short. My head is spinning, and I wonder how yours is. And when you think about the eclectic mix of the people whose talent you have recognized, it is so eclectic. How does one set of ears get attracted to such a wide variety of music? From the very beginning, I didn't specialize. From the very beginning, I approached music, you know, just being open to what moved me. And whether it was in the material for those artists that wrote their own material, like a Patti Smith or Bruce Springsteen or Billy Joel, or whether it was the gift of a performer, you know, that can lift an audience out of its uh, feet the way that Joplin did. You know, I never specialized. Clearly, I love all kinds of music. And so now, as you say, I was not a specialist. I want to go back to the beginning with you because I thought that early in your book, you spoke about your parents who, who really tragically died so young. And you can tell us about that. But one thing that really resonated with me that your mother said is it, it's not all about studying. And your parents were not college educated, correct? That's correct. And they and I remember you talking about, and you tell me, uh, 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 tell me if I'm wrong, that your mother said, it's not all about studying. Get out there. Be with people. Socialize. I have to imagine that that emphasis on being well-rounded had a huge impact on your success. A tremendous impact. No question about it. And, you know, I do that with, I have four kids and six grandkids. And I emphasize the totality of life. It's great, you know, if you're naturally inclined to books, to academia, to pursue that, the wonders of learning. On the other hand, people smarts, not living in ivory tower is so very important. So I went out after school and played punch ball and stick ball and touch football and mixed, you know, fortunately it was a melting pot neighborhood and so there were the predominant Jewish population, either poor or lower middle class, and then there were the Irish and the Italians and you know, people of all colors would prepared me in life for feeling comfortable in every setting. Hmm. And like so many Jews, as I am, Sundays were a very special day. And for you, it boiled down to an eighth of a pound. Tell us about that eighth of a pound. <laughs> well, what you're referring to is what we call locks, you know. We never had the money to do anything more than to buy an eighth of a pound. So that brought into the family just enough so that you could sort of dot your cream cheese and bagel. You couldn't take slices. When I see my own family take full slices, you know, it still jars me because I'm 
you know, it's very much a part of you, your roots, your origins. And I remember just dotting that babel with a touch. So wait a second. So I'll tell you, I was an only child, and my parents were not of greater means than yours. I understand you went to college on a full scholarship. You got into Harvard Law, full scholarship. How much locks do you put on your bagel today? Well, I, I must say I don't dot it. I must say I don't dot it. I've taken advantage, I, you know, so that I feel the luxury of taking a slice. I don't overdo it. I'm still very conscious of the substantive larger issue. But I must say I'm into slices, and I'm happy to say I'm into slices, but never to overstuff it. And, um, you talk about Sunday. Let's not forget Chinese food because that was a tradition for dinner. Every To this day, this coming Sunday night, I will have Chinese food. I have dinner with my offspring. We don't want to be loving strangers. I have dinner with my offspring every Sunday night. And 90% of the time, it is Chinese food. You know, you talk about your offspring a lot. And... I was just reading the other day, there was a piece in the New York Times about this study that had been done that talked about resilience in children. And they, they have found that there is a direct connection between how you relay your family narrative to your kids and how resilient they are. And here's what impressed me about your book. The, the family, the type of family narrative that produces the most resilient children is the one where the parents express, we have had ups and downs. The downs have been painful, but we bounce back from them. The kids who learn that that is part of the rhythm of life turn out to be most resilient. Tell us about, before we get into your ups in the music industry, tell us about some of your downs. Well, sure, because life, you expressed it beautifully. I mean, uh, you can't go along for four plus decades uh, without Downs and see here I was at the height of my career at Columbia Records, signing the artists that I mentioned, really with a golden touch, um, and loving it beyond any imagination. And then um, something un- impossible to foretell: a man at Columbia uh, had been part of a fraudulent invoice scheme and was clearly set to go to jail. And someone I had never appointed didn't report to me, but had gathered up hundreds of invoices, including some of mine, uh, to fraudulently extract money from the company. And to get a lesser penalty, he said that he would cooperate with the U.S. Attorney's Office on the subject of payola in the record industry, or more specifically at Columbia well, the powers that be at Columbia ran scared. They separated themselves from me. I was let go, summarily fired, on the same issues that they knew were handled by this gentleman who did go to jail. And it took two years for me, painfully silent, dealing with a witch hunt which ultimately exonerated entirely the company. There was no payola. Um, All of those issues, there was no um, expense account or other uh, defalcations, really, of any important nature whatsoever. And when you get the exoneration, you know, you never get the headlines as the original charges. There was a tough period to go through, 
To this day, when I recall it, it's painful, but I had to survive a witch hunt. I did. It toughens you up. And my kids did see, you know, me resiliently bounce back, found Towers to record. I had the really wonderful fortune of the exact first record, Mandy from Barry Manilow, going straight to number one. So we didn't have any anxiety as to whether we'd have any success with the new operation. How old were you when this was going on? When that occurred, I was 41. So you're 41 years old, and you're basically staring at the possibility that your reputation, your most valuable asset, might never recover. That is true. That's very accurate and very true. And it, it didn't. And that, but, but always having belief, knowing the facts that this was a witch hunt, you never know what you don't know. But it wasn't that I was blase. The wounds, the pain, dealing with the company and describing in the book, you know, how they protected themselves in the event that anything was found, so that this illustrious artist roster, everything about it, uh, was kept sotto voce. But of course, you know, when the investigation proved empty, um, as I said, we were back in business uh, with my new company and them, and I was honored by the famous Martell Foundation for Cancer, AIDS, and Leukemia Research. You know, and the president of Columbia Records said, we're all in your debt, Clive, that it was you as the example that was being investigated on behalf of all of us and withstood this terrible witch witch hunt. And so now here you are 40 years later, and I was telling my young son, who I was going to be interviewing, and as as a young, uh, somebody who's not quite a teenager, he didn't know who you are, but he knew a lot of your artists, and he, as somebody who's very interested in making money, he immediately went to the Internet and said, Dad, he's worth $800 million. Is that true? No, it's not true. It's not true. So sometimes the internet could be wrong. I'm not pleading poverty. I'm doing very well, you know. And uh, but uh, I don't know where that figure. Uh, Just if came we from. if if we were, and I'm not. I, I don't want to pry, but if it were somewhere between a hundred million and eight hundred million, where are you closer to? I would be closer to a hundred million. Okay, but I still stack that bagel with the smoked salmon then. <laughs> but but let me. But, Yo, but today your associate here would tell you I'm wearing Prada sneakers, <laughs> and, uh, really nice uh, Armani jacket. So yeah, <laughs> well, well, you know what? What I did tell my son was I said, you know, I was reading Clive Davis's book, and even after he graduated from Harvard Law School and had what by those st- days standards was a lucrative job, you dreamed. You had a number in your head, and I was blown away by the number of how small your dream was in terms of the salary you one day wanted Isn't to earn. Isn't that amazing? Tell us. I would have been thrilled with a $25,000 annual compensation. Explain to my... When I graduated from law school, I was the equivalent of law review. I went to the top law firm. There's always the rung of the top law firm. The going rate, you must understand, this reminds me when I was a kid when they said, you know, the milk was selling for five cents, but... I was making $4,500 a year when I got out of law school with the top law firm in New York City. So that, yeah, 25000 which sounds certainly minor today for 
a goal of a dream compensation was, you know, between five and six times what I was earning as I graduated. So I thought I could live so well on that. And of course, it's laughable, but with a warm laugh. Well, and, and, and here's the thing, I guess, and as we parents, you know, look to help our children navigate and, and try to encourage them to dream big, I, what I'm getting out of your story is you didn't necessarily, it didn't sound like you dreamed big. You worked hard, though. Did you have big dreams? No. I don't dream that much. I, I, um, that might sound strange. Um, you move into various responsibilities, and you, the, the prime message here is hard work. I mean, I did end up with a natural gift to be, you know, to be modest. The answer is I could not have signed all these artists or found these songs in so many different areas of music if it did not turn out to be a natural gift. But it doesn't reduce. I had to keep my scholarship at NYU and Harvard. I had to get a B-plus to A-minus average. I always worked hard. I always believed in be prepared. When I became the lawyer for Columbia Records, I went back to law school with two kids at night to NYU to take more courses so that I could be prepared. Today, to this day, you don't get your new record. If I come with a new Jennifer Hudson single, they're not going to add it because I discovered Janis Joplin or Whitney Houston. They're going to add it because they think it's in the pocket of today's music so that I take nothing for granted. Uh, I work as hard as I ever did because I love it. How lucky is the person, which includes me, who found a profession where you love it. The hours mean nothing. So today's Friday. I'm going to come with a satchel uh, to my weekend home, and I'll listen to what made the hip-hop charts, the rock charts. Um, a, because I love doing it. B, because I want to know, is the trend changing? So often, w whether it's with peers, where they'll play you a song that you knew would be a hit five or ten years ago, but would never be a hit today. So I'm a great believer in preparation and hard work. So this leads me to something I'm curious about, because I've heard you say that you come home every weekend. It's almost like a religion. You listen to the top hits of the week. And this is what the question it leads me to. If you're listening to the top hits of this past week, your job is to discover the, the, the hits of next week. How is that procedure of listening to the hits of the past week? Why aren't you a lagging indicator? How is it that you, Clive Davis, have become a leading indicator of music? Oh, well, they're two severable, uh, they're really two severable of ideas here. Um, for, in order for me to submit songs for artists that don't write, if it's an artist that writes, like Alicia Keys, a wonderful Renaissance uh, woman artist, or when I was dealing with a Patti Smith or Springs, you don't give songs. You're dealing with the genius of those artists and trying to find, consistent with their integrity, the largest possible audience for them. But when you're listening for material for Whitney Houston or I'm just re-signing just now Aretha Franklin, 
uh, or looking for material for a great young talent, Jennifer Hudson, you've got to find those songs that would be hits for them, signature songs for them today. And so you're honing your ear and keeping current. You never prepare yourself. There's no way to prepare yourself for the next trendsetter. There's no way to prepare yourself for those artists that are going to change the whole curve for when a new Springsteen, a new Dylan, a new Patti Smith is coming uh, about. Uh, But that happens rarely, and I do want to make the point, this is not unique to music. Uh, I've grown up, I really live in New York City, I'm very aware of theater, I'm obviously a film buff as well. And, you know, the golden days, there's no new All About Eve either. There's no new Tennessee Williams or Eugene O'Neill play. So that the golden era might be behind us in a lot of different aspects of culture. But when that new artist comes along that breaks the mold and is different, you know, you are prepared for it just by the natural gift. Then you're resorting to your natural um to your natural gift. And most of the time, you're taking advantage of your expertise because if it's someone that's a pop, like when I approach American Idol, there's two chapters in this book on American Idol, and I show my belief at the beginning. And I kept the same criteria in looking for Clay Aiken and Kelly Clarkson and Fantasia uh, that I did when I went looking for material for Whitney Houston, for example. I went to the best songwriters in order to validate the prize there. Uh, you know, a guy at your level must get approached by so many people. Let me give you something. A guy who would never approach you, but our producer, who's right there in New York with you, Dan Sematowicz, uh, who has a band, The District Lights, you must have people like him, and somebody like him would love to say, listen to my CD. How many people come up to you saying, well, listen to Well, he did. I just came out of your office and someone absolutely uh, put a CD um, in my, in my <laughs> hands and said that. Uh, and wherever I have um, wherever I have dinner, really, um, by the time dinner is finished and I walk out of a restaurant, somehow a call had been made. And I, I've never found an artist that way. I don't treat this disrespectfully. I can't say that I listen to unsolicited um, material. You know, it, it occurs to me that, you know, while you might not take unsolicited music, as I read your life story, in addition to the preparation, in addition to the expertise, in addition to looking at every fine detail in the fine print, a lot of your life story has to do with serendipity. And being open to serendipity, correct? Yes, that is correct. Very much so. Give me just one example of a big deal that you are proud of that came about through pure serendipity. Well, for those out there that that are not dealing with multisyllable words, I, I assume we're talking about luck, right? Well, and you know, luck, luck, but, but you know, creating the conditions. Does serendipity mean something other than luck so that I have the full extent of the question? I would say— I'm asking you now. Yes. No, that, that, it's a great question. I, it, there's something more about—serendipity is almost having your eyes open and being ready for that opportunity you're going to well, stumble the most, upon. The, 
the most dramatic example was at the Monterey Pop Festival. You know, they were talking about I had just become head of the company a year before. I had never signed an artist. I found myself there serendipitously. I'm glad I was able to pronounce it. And there was Janis Joplin in a group, unheralded. No one had ever heard of her or Big Brother and the holding company. And I took advantage of that, never thinking I'd sign an artist, certainly that weekend, maybe never, and committed myself to sign her. Well, that was a tremendous example of being in the right place at the right time and taking advantage of that moment. Let me ask you something, because we're going to wrap up uh, soon. But uh, I, I really, I personally related to your life story a lot, uh, especially your childhood when you talked about uh, going up to the uh, Catskill Mountains. Uh, my father happened to have been a stand-up comedian. His name was Bobby Shields and worked all the clubs you talked about. And, and I grew up going and watching him and listening to the timing on stage, the you know, Grossinger's, the Catskills. And which was the place that you used to go to as a kid? Uh, I went to the Fairmont Hotel. Uh, there were Saturday nights at the Fairmont that he would come back from, you know, after driving the two hours from our house. And... When my father passed away, and by the way, he, he had had Parkinson's disease for a number of years and kept on working through it until he just couldn't get up on stage anymore. And when I hear you say that you are working every day, it reminds me of all the people I know in show business. Nobody retires who loves their job, right? That, that's true. I mean, if you're fortunate to be healthy and to have the energy that's required, um, you know, not that you don't want to, I don't want to paint an unrealistic picture of being so driven that you don't stop and smell the roses. I do want to add, you know, I do travel and I make sure, I do it around holidays so that I found that America now makes a week, a minimum of a week around a holiday, whether it's July 4th or Labor Day or two weeks at around Christmas time so that... I love travel in the world. I love Europe. I love Western Europe especially. I love the south of France. I love the Amalfi Coast. Um, and more recently, rather than just sunning oneself in the Caribbean, I, at Christmas time with a longer break, have explored India and Asia and this past Christmas, uh, Australia. So I... I love what I do, so maybe you like, if you do it, I'm talking about working hard and perhaps playing hard. I, I certainly believe not to be that narrow that you don't have a perspective. We live on a great earth, and you uh, want to see and be a part of and immerse yourself. So as an added irrelevant aspect to my career, I could not speak higher than I would of the Amalfi Coast uh, to... Um, vacation and to soak up the glory of that area and Italian food and Capri. So you turn off. Do you pardon tu that digression. No, no. Okay. Do, you, do you turn off your iPod? How do you listen to music these days? By the way, do you listen to it on an iPod or do you listen to it on vinyl or something in between? No. Well, I listen. I'm. I'm a combination. There's no one. Uh, place that I really listen to uh, music. I do listen on an iPod, but I also do put songs and music together that I would like to 
here. And if I go down, let's say, in Capri to Pontolina and I'm spending the day on the rocks, you know, I will perhaps even still bring my portable CD player um, with a number of CDs uh, that I brought along for the occasion. So final question. You revealed at the end of your book, and this made a lot of news, but I, I, I want to ask you it from a different angle. You revealed that over time, over your life, after two marriages, you you uh, you discovered yourself that you were bisexual, correct? That's correct. And I remember one night my father taking me to one of Rodney Dangerfield's shows. It's the only bisexual joke I ever heard. I want to share it with you. Rodney Dangerfield gets up there. He says, uh, he said, I don't get no respect. I went on a date the other night with a bisexual nymphomaniac. She said I wasn't her type. <laughs> I wonder. Well, a, that's funny. But the word bisexual means that you're still attracted to the opposite sex, but that you've uh, broadened the perspective so that you could be attracted to an individual, whether male or female, uh, and not just to one gender. And so that this occurred with me after my second marriage uh, failed. I had been totally heterosexual. And you find that when you are bisexual, when you open up yourself to the person and not the gender, that almost everybody, the old cliche is true, you're either gay or straight or you're lying. Well, I devote a few pages at the end of my book to set the record straight here. No, bisexuality does exist, and uh, you're not lying if you are bisexual, so that hopefully society is moving to an acceptance that not everybody is cut from the exact same cloth. So tell me if I'm reading too much into this. When you express that open view of who you're attracted to, and then I look at, seriously, the eclectic wide range of music that you have been open to and attracted to, is there some connection there in your personality that maybe, maybe it's the same part of you? The connection is being open in life. The connection is not to be that closed off, but that you don't know when the next influence, you don't know when the next new experience might be coming from, and not to come with some tight-drawn, preconceived idea about anything. So uh, that has served me well, and I think that's the link that might connect both thoughts. Good good luck with your unexpected experiences in your 81st year and... uh... Clive Davis, thank you so much for joining us on CNN Profiles. My pleasure. Thank you. You made it easy and and profound at the same time. Thanks so much. By the way, you can find CNN Profiles on our website, cnn.com slash soundwaves, or download us from iTunes or go to SoundCloud. And please, if you like what you hear, don't be shy. Share.